For those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Hello all, welcome back to the Drake Cast. We've got just a short one for you today. It's a story from the winter issue of the Drake magazine called Numbers Game that basically asks the question, do I need to catch more fish? The author, Stephen Sautner, does a better job answering that question than I've heard in a long time. Take it away, Stephen. Numbers Game. It's time for a slow fishing movement. Prob hooked 50. The words felt strange as I tapped out a quick report on my phone to my friend Dave. But it was true. I'd spent the better part of the afternoon Euronymphing, and the fishing was indeed ridiculous. Within the first hour, I'd already hooked more than a dozen. By hour two, I lost count. Wild browns, nice fish up to 18 inches, with a few thick, foot-long brookies thrown in. In the evening, I switched to twitching attractors and some faster runs and landed another 10 or so until I finally quit at dark. By the time I hit send, the day had become just a blur of hook sets, thrashing fish, and rapid-fire releases. A few hasty photos of larger trout cradled in my half-submerged left hand served as documentation of the day, but little else. Any poetry of a perfect cast soft take or arcing leap was lost in the sheer numbers of fish. Before last season began, I found myself with the unshakable urge to make my fishing days more epic. Maybe it was certain ads in fishing magazines that said I needed to crush variables or that failure was not an option, or videos that showed cool-looking dudes repeatedly hooking up and fist-bumping in high def. Whatever it was, my own modest fishing success suddenly felt anemic. It was time to level up. First, I made key purchases. Top-of-the-line prescription sunglasses with low-light lenses, wading boots with carbide studs that I individually tightened with a socket wrench and drop of superglue, a heavy-duty collapsible wading staff and a sort of quiver that I could unsheath like a samurai sword, then I tied dozens and dozens of tungsten beaded nymphs and CDC everything and inserted them in my fly box like bullets in an ammo clip. I studied and learned new superfast knots and read about ways to swap out leaders more efficiently as conditions changed. Previously, lucky fishing shirts were replaced with camouflage hoodies so I could melt into streamside vegetation. By opening day, I had transformed into an angler assassin. And it paid off, I guess. The new gear allowed me to approach fish I had surely been missing or spooking, and the techniques I learned minimized wasted time previously spent fussing with fly changes or clumsily retying a new leader. By the end of the spring, I'd probably caught more wild trout than in the past five years combined. From blue lines to bigger rivers, I wielded my new gear with great effect, swashbuckling through pools and runs and racking up impressive numbers of trout. Sure, I still got skunked in tough conditions, 
or found risers I couldn't fool or casts I couldn't make. But when I was dialed in, the fish came and came. Gigabytes on my phone were taken up by the same image of my submerged left hand holding yet another trout. Yeah, it was epic. But here's the thing. It also began to feel a little, I don't know, gluttonous. When fish number eight becomes number 28, and you still want to cast for fish number 48, then wake up in the morning and go for number 58, and then eventually 98, you may have crossed the threshold from gentle sport to the dark side of mindless fish counting. I noticed something else, too. I started catching the same fish over again. When I scrolled through images of certain trout from certain rivers, I recognized identical spot patterns from fish caught the week before or the previous month. One day, I landed a foot-long brown with my nymph still stuck in its upper jaw from a week earlier, a break-off from a double header on a tandem rig, so much for barbless hooks falling out in 24 hours. The fish stared back at me from the landing net, now with two Frenchies in its mouth. Its expression seemed to say, Hey, bud, what's your problem? That's when I also started to feel, if not guilty, then maybe a little silly, all decked out in my angler ninja gear, hell-bent to catch every trout in the river, twice. Consider today's astonishing technology available to anglers. 8X fluoroliters, sunglasses with sweat management channels, satellites orbiting the Earth, beaming real-time data of stream levels and water temperatures directly into our phones. Perhaps a thousand years' worth of instructional videos that show every fly ever tied and every trick slackline cast ever thrown are but a URL away. We've got rods with smooth loading, quick recover action that allow precise accuracy at short distances without sacrificing the power and backbone necessary for punching flies at longer distances through the wind. If you can't catch a fish with that, better take up pickleball. So, it's no wonder I caught 50 trout that day. In all honesty, it wasn't that hard, and I'm no Landon Mayer. I was in the right place, the fish were turned on, and I just kept catching them. It was that simple. But it got me thinking about all the other would-be Landons, lefties, and Aprils out there, not to mention the guides and lodges all putting their sports into whacking days of unlimited hookups. And therein lies what could be an epic problem. Just how many angler ninjas can a wild trout population take? Maybe not that many. On my home waters here in the Northeast, some of the trout are starting to look a little beat up. A mangled jaw here, missing scales there. Others seem to fight timidly, as if their wildness was broken from that last release, measurement, photo op. And these are the survivors. I recently read a stat that said catch and release mortality for trout can vary from as little as 1% to as much as 20, depending on conditions. So if you whack 50, anywhere from half a trout to 10 wind up as crayfish food. But mortality isn't necessarily measured in the grisly poundage of dead fish on the bottom of a river. Weaken a trout enough through rough handling or multiple releases and it may become a merganser's breakfast. Maybe this is why places like Labrador make you stop fishing for the day after you released three Atlantic salmon, two on some rivers. 
They don't want you to feed the seals. So what can we do? No, I'm not expecting us all to turn in our five weights. But as enlightened anglers, perhaps our goal should be this. Use our technically advanced gear, data, and knowledge, and collectively not catch so many trout. Instead of landing 50, throttle back a little. Relax. Breathe. Study the poetry of the river. Fish more, but cast less. Let's call it the slow fishing movement. This is tough to imagine, I know. I mean, who doesn't want to catch every trout in the pool when the hatch is on and fish are crushing bugs on the surface? But then I think about the first modern fly angler who landed a big wild steelhead, considered it for a few moments, and then had the audacity to return it to the river. Imagine how his fishing buddies must have reacted, each of them dragging along a rope stringer of dead fish. But worlds turn on such seemingly small actions. Today, if that same angler intentionally killed a big wild steely, his friends might toss him in the river. That same discipline is needed to make a slow fishing movement work. Maybe we should take a cue from my friend Dee, who, after she releases a nice trout, sits by the water, unpacks a bowl from her sling pack, and smokes. Then she gazes at streamside trees, listens to the gentle chuckle of a riffle, or watches clouds float by. After what seems like a long, luxurious time, she gets up, saunters back into the river, and continues fishing. Her casts, when she makes them, are measured and thoughtful. She treats the stream like a farm-to-table tasting menu, not the all-you-can-eat buffet at Golden Corral. Another friend told me about his brother, who had reached a stage in his fishing evolution where he could stroll to the river with a good bottle of wine and enjoy a glass or two while he watched trout rise. His rod remained at home, in its tube. To that I say, cheers. Slow fishing can mean challenging yourself to only go for the best or hardest fish. I've been thinking about a well-known pool on the upper Delaware. On a typical evening in May or June, maybe 50 sippers come out, and drift boats line up and take shots at them. I've joined the queue from the shore and had amazing evenings of multiple releases. Meanwhile, just downstream in a certain tail out away from the fleet, one, maybe two big browns, power up from a downstream riffle, and gulp mayflies against a grassy bank. When they show, and often they do not, you can hear them sucking down bugs at 40 feet. It's a tough drift, but if you fool one, there's a good chance you're about to see your backing. Next spring, I vow to pry myself away from the more reliable sippers for shots at these mighty but mercurial fish, even if it means that sometimes I may never make a cast. Here's another idea. Ditch the Euronymphing and its gillnet efficiency, and instead, swing some wets. Work on your midge game. Bring binoculars to watch trout rise, or look for warblers along the stream. If you've never zoomed in on a mayfly the moment it vanishes into the maw of a big trout, you're missing one of angling's great joys. Plus, you might learn they are taking 18 olives, not 16 sulfurs. Recently, I've taken to fishing enormous hair-winged spiders 
because violent water-throwing takes are so much cooler than another ho-hum twitch of my indicator. I know I can probably hook 10 on the nymphing rig for every one on the big dry, but who cares? As I continue to think out ways to personally fish slower, I want to be clear to my fellow anglers. I am not judging. This is a philosophy, not an edict. And to those who have not yet guzzled from the goblet of 50 trout epic days, continue to fish hard, and you will likely someday achieve that goal. If you do, feel free to stroll down the mountain to a gentler river, where, hopefully, some of us former assassin types will be making slow, full-measured casts, or perhaps none at all. To continue this discussion and many others, get your hands on the latest issue of the Drake Magazine, either on our website, drakemag.com, or better yet, at your local fly shop. If you like what you heard, make sure to check out Stephen's new audiobook called Fish On, Fish Off. In it, he reads 50 stories about angling and misadventure. Think of it as a six and a half hour podcast of real life fishing stories about heartbreak, terror, and triumph. Fish On, Fish Off is available on Audible and audiobooks.com. That's it for today, but we'll be back at the end of May with another episode. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast.